0: Lord, we thank you for your word and for, in particular, the book of James, and Lord, how you are at work already working in us through this book, having us consider the the kind of trials and tests that you take us through, and Lord, how you desire to grow us during those times toward maturity. And Lord, would you help us today as we now Uh, come once again to this text. Lord, help us to be humble before you, to be teachable, um, that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in our hearts and to instruct us, Lord, in ways that we need to um, come to you and seek forgiveness, Lord, for our our lack of trust, as well as, Lord, finding confidence um, in resting in you. as we are facing our trial and our test together. Lord, would you be glorified, and would I simply be your mouthpiece, Lord, for this text, in your precious name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Now friends, don't you want God's blessing on your life? Don't you believe that it is God's desire to bless his children? Don't you know that if you come to God by faith that you can live the blessed life? that you will experience health, prosperity, and abundance of joy. Jesus promises blessing for you if you will come to him by faith and believe. Just speak his promises out loud, and God will make them happen in your life. Don't you know that each of you has a lottery ticket given by God that you just need to cash it in, friends, so you can live your best life now but you just need to name it and claim it and if you give your money to God he promises that he will give you more money back and in abundance so says the slithering sermon or sermon of a typical prosperity gospel preacher that may have been the most excited you guys have gotten at my preaching ever Now the sad reality is that so many preachers are pastoring churches and are proclaiming blindly the same truths. Maybe in more subtle forms. They don't realize that what they're pro- proclaiming is a prosperity gospel. And it's a, it's a higher life mentality that has grown out of our Western culture that sees the blessings that God talks about as purely physical and temporal and financial. We often don't realize that we are living in a society that is by far the most affluent in history. And so we are easily caught up by this stuff. And as Christians, we even expect to live this kind of more prosperity mentality life. And friends, when the poverty level in San Francisco is stated to be 82,000 for an individual or 117,000 for a family, we know that we we are living in a time that really doesn't understand poverty. You say, Pastor, you've never tried to live in San Francisco. That's not the point. Poverty around the world is not like that. And so we must consider that when Scripture talks about poverty and riches, it's speaking in a context where there truly is a disparity between the two. To be poor in Christ's day, or the day of the early church, when James is writing here, was to be on the lowest rung of the ladder. Where you live day by day trying to provide for yourself, your family, working with your hands typically, doing day labor, or serving in the home of someone who is wealthy. If you are rich in the early church, that meant that you had a lot of wealth, you had beautiful accommodations, you had multiple servants, great influence and standing in society, and confidence about your future. It is what we still see, however, this disparity is still what we see in third world countries, isn't it? There's the rich few, and then there are the poor multitudes. This is the reality and the context into which James is now speaking. Now, when you come to Scripture, you will not find it teaching that the goal of the poor is to become rich. Or that the responsibility of the rich is to give their money away so that the poor can be elevated and therefore everyone is equal. The scriptures are not concerned with economic equality. But they are concerned with spiritual equality. And that new spiritual status of equality fleshes out then In God's people, now helping people in different situations, whether they are poor or whether they're needy. So the current growing utopian Marxist idea of economic equality, friends, is not found in Scripture. You're going to have to twist a lot of Scripture passages to force it into that mold, because it's just not there. In fact, what Scripture has to say contradicts those ideas. And even when such a utopian society is attempted, history reveals that there will still be a disparity between those who are rich or in power and the poor. It doesn't change. So instead, the Word of God asks the poor and rich alike to consider their situations in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to have a God-centered perspective on both poverty and poverty and prosperity, as each of those different situations will come with their own problems and issues. Listen, the the poor are often trying to live their lives in such a way that they can gain more money, gain more wealth, and they bemoan the fact that they don't have enough. Those who are rich will tend to live their lives always concerned to keep what they have Gained in their life. Now, that might be simplistic, but I think you get the point of the tension and the way that God now wants to kind of correct our thinking and our understanding about our own circumstances. And as we come to this passage, as we come to James 1 9 through 12, which is our text today, it might appear that James is changing the topic a little bit here. That he's simply introducing a new theme of instruction regarding the poor and the rich. But that would not take into account what's going on in the context, would it? See, James has taken time to establish the kind of process God takes his children through so that they can reach maturity. And if you remember, he paints this picture of what it means to be maturity. He talks about those who are... um, those who are... My brain isn't working here. Chap- chapter 1, verse 4. Help me out here. So you'll be complete, you'll be lacking nothing, and the first one is what? Perfect. Word perfect, right? Be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Those three words encompass in a wonderful way this picture of maturity. But he says the way that you get there is through tests and through the the right kind of steadfastness that comes while you are going through that test. And then after that, he says, now, if you're lacking something, obviously, he says you're lacking wisdom, then turn to God. And pray to God by faith, asking for wisdom about your circumstance so that you can have a right perspective and you'll have a better understanding of what you need to do. And that's what we looked at last week. So now when we come to our present context, to our our present text, and James is now talking about the rich man and the, the lowly man, what is he doing? He's not just introducing a new topic. What he's doing is he's actually giving us an illustration and an application of what he has already been saying. And he's using the differences between the rich and the poor to make his point. So he's not simply changing the topic. He is pointing out that heavenly wisdom will help both the brother who is poor as well as the brother who is rich. Each of them need divine wisdom for their test. And friends, this is really important for us to understand because we often think of tests or trials as just simply the negative things that happen to us. But those tests and trials are not just always the negative. The rich man who has lots of stuff is also going through a test. What is he going to do with that wealth? What is that wealth going to accomplish? What do you do now to try and protect that wealth? How do you multiply that wealth? You see, it's it's a test. And just like someone who's poor, his test might be different. The rich man also has a struggle that he has to face, and we're going to get into that a little bit here. So in both cases, James is calling on them to look at their circumstances in light of God's big picture. God is accomplishing his purposes in his believers, whether rich or poor, so that they will become mature. Which means that because of the gospel, they are to adopt heavenly wisdom that assesses what is really important in their lives and we all need that and so this morning i would like to put it this way that biblical wisdom applied during trials gives believers in every situation reason to boast say well wait a second if you're poor you're supposed to boast yeah if you're rich you're supposed to boast yeah This word boast actually modifies both the rich man and the poor man. It's talking about both. Both of them are to have a reason to boast. So let's first of all talk about the test of poverty here. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So the question now is who is he and what is his exaltation? Well, let's take the first one. Who is the lowly brother? He is the individual who is on the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder. He's the man or woman who is poor, who might have a job, but it's typically eking out life day by day. And if we understand the scriptures correctly, most Christians of that time fell into this category. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, here's what you will find. Here's the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, "...for consider your calling, brothers," Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. So according to Paul, the lowly brother is considered by the world to be foolish, to be weak, to be despised. And although those may be true statements of most believers in the early church, James is saying that they are to boast in their exaltation. That doesn't make any sense. So what is it then that is this exaltation? Now, if we're left to the televangelists, they will tell us to believe that what James is talking about, the poor boast in becoming rich. Rich. God desires to elevate you out of your poverty and to give you wealth. But that is not the argument James is making at all. That's not the argument that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians. Paul is telling these foolish, weak, and despised Christians to boast in the Lord, isn't he? And that's what James is saying here in our text. That the lowly brother is to boast in the fact that though... He is poor financially. His situation is humble that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has been exalted. Not physically, not economically, but spiritually. So what James is saying to the lowly man, to the poor man, is this. When you look at your circumstances, when you look at your trials, when you look at your suffering and the tests that you're going through, when you look at them through the lens of wisdom, achieved by praying with unwavering faith, you will not look at yourself as simply one who is depressed by your poverty, but one who has been blessed beyond measure by Christ. You are spiritually rich. So friends, this is really, really important for the body of Christ to see, isn't it? I mean, this is is incredibly important for us sitting in this church. That is an Old Testament illustration, I think, of what poverty looks like. You know the story of Ruth, don't you? Ruth comes with her her, her mother-in-law back to, to the Israel and into the territories there, and while she is there, it is very clear that she is very poor. How do we know that? Because she goes out gleaning in the fields. Now, if you know what gleaning in the fields was in in the economy of Old Testament Israel, um, if you had a crop, you left the edges for those who were poor, um, those who didn't have anything, and they would come and they could they could pick up what was left over and they could take it home. In our modern day setting, this would be Ruth. Going to a dumpster and diving for food and for stuff. It'll be the kind of people that come through your neighborhood and look in your recycle can for soda cans and bottles to go take them to, you know, to, to get the money out. This is the poor who have nothing. And this is what they're trying to do to find a way to survive. She's poor. And in that story, what happens? Boaz shows up, right? And he is the one who has all this wealth. And he speaks, and it happens. And not only does that happen, but he blesses her. He finds favor in her. It is undeserving favor, and yet it is granted to her and to Naomi. And here's the point. It foreshadows one who is rich, who bestows that riches on we who do not deserve it. And friends, do we understand The great wealth that God has given us by simply elevating us out of poverty to the riches of his glorious grace. This is the lowly man who has been told, boast in your exaltation. So the lowly brother has much to boast about, doesn't he? When he comes to church, and he needs to keep his perspective that he is seated next to Mr. Wells Fargo, who owns and runs the bank, who's also spiritually rich. It doesn't matter where this lowly man lives, because he's spiritually rich. It doesn't matter what kind of car he drives or what clothes he has, because he's spiritually rich. It doesn't matter where his kids go to school or where he went to college. Why? Because he's spiritually rich. It doesn't matter how much money he has in the bank or in his portfolio, because he is spiritually rich. And James is saying, let the lowly man boast in his exaltation. Now, friends, that is a radical and paradoxical statement. It's the opposite of what the world says and what the world thinks. The world is crying out for the poor to become rich economically. James, Paul, and the heartbeat of Scripture is crying out that the poor man who is in Christ is rich. And to boast in those riches. And it's this new and fresh perspective that the lowly man has because he has taken time to look at his trial, at his test and going to God in prayer, asking for wisdom, that now he has an awareness of what is most important, that divine wisdom gives him a freshness of understanding that what is far more important than stuff is the riches of the glorious grace that God has bestowed on him. Now, friends, is that something that you need to be reminded of? Do you need a fresh dose of your spiritual reality that you are one who has an inheritance? You're one of God's children. Are you always caught up trying to compare yourself to others based on the world's definitions and categories? Do you get discouraged because you're poor? Now, as I mentioned earlier, the poverty level in San Francisco was 117,000 and friends most of us wouldn't know how to interact with the poor in Christ day let alone try to compare our lives to them we don't Now I know some of you have been to other countries you you've been to places where there's third-world realities and you you walk into a village or you walk into a home, and I've, I've done this, I'm, I'm thinking in Bolivia in particular, walking into a home where there is a structure but there's dirt floors. And the kids are playing happily. They're dirty, but they're playing happily. And the mother is working her tail off and she's offering you the best food that she had. And there's a joy going on there. And we're like, where's the carpet, dude? I'm going to sit on this bench? It's hard. I wonder how long we're going to be here. We realize how comfortable we have become. And the reality is when you go through an experience like that, you come back and you step foot back in the United States and you realize we just don't get it. Those who are poor here economically are actually rich compared to the rest of the world. There's something healthy about God's people in particular having that kind of experience. We who belong to Christ can boast in Christ because we are spiritually rich. That's the first example that James is giving here, but it's part of another example because he he moves from the, the test of poverty to the test of prosperity. Now, some people might say, What do you mean, test of prosperity? If you're rich, you don't have anything to worry about. You got money, everything's fine. Let's read verses 10 and 11. And the rich in his humiliation boast in his humiliation. Because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls. And as beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So having looked at the lowly man, the poor man, and his test of poverty, we're now looking at the rich man with his test of prosperity. Again, who is the rich brother? It's a good question. It's important for us to ask the question. We think about richness. I think, you know, obviously we, we jump to, to people like um, Bill Gates or, or Donald Trump from a financial perspective. But the reality is that most of us, according to the world standards, are wealthy people. Let me just rattle some things off to you. We own our own home. We have a couple of cars, computers, TVs, iPhones, closets full of clothes. So much so that we have difficulty deciding what we're going to wear today. Anyone struggled this morning? Yeah? We have electricity. Indoor plumbing, and some of us even have air conditioning for those two or three weeks during the year when we just can't stay cool. All the while, much of the rest of the world is happy to have a roof over its head, some extra clothes that they can wear from time to time, and some basic food day by day. And so, friends, I I think although we might look at the, the poverty test, I actually think that much of our test is probably more on the prosperity side. So what is this rich brother's humiliation? It's quite the word, isn't it? His humiliation. I mean, it sounds devastating, but it's not. How can can the wealthy believer glory in his or her humiliation? How can we glory in being brought low? What is it that James is getting at here? Is James advocating that the rich man should be humiliated simply because he's rich? Or that to be rich is somehow an evil that must be eradicated. Is he suggesting that we find joy when someone who is wealthy, has influence, or is important to society, suffers hardship, or loses all his or her resources? Certainly we understand that having wealth comes with all sorts of complications. Let me just list off a few and maybe see if you can resonate with these. The more you have, the more you're tempted to satisfy your fleshly desires. Why? Because you can. The more you have, the more you want to protect what you have. So now you're panicked over that. I mean, if you don't have money in the stock market, guess what? You don't care about the stock market. But if you do, your eyes are always there. The more you have, the more people cozy up to you hoping for a handout. And you're always questioning, are these people after something, or are they just wanting a relationship? The more you have, the more you will owe in taxes. The more you have invested, the more potential you have to lose. And on and on we can go. And friends, I think oftentimes we're bewildered by people that we have somehow heard about or seen who have risen from the ranks of poverty and have been showered with financial abundance who, in just a few short years, have blown it all and filed for bankruptcy. And this happens in the world of entertainment, in the world of sports in particular, and also with those who win the lottery. Consider the following names that you may know. Mike Tyson, famous world champion boxer, in his life earned over 400 million dollars has to file for bankruptcy. And uh, you hear this, and you're like, can I say this? What an idiot. John Daly, the power swinging golfer, some of you may remember him, 55 million, filed for bankruptcy. Boris Becker, the powerful German tennis player who won Wimbledon three times and was runner-up four times. That tells you he was pretty good. He earned 126 million, and he ends up filing for bankruptcy. Michael, Japs, Michael Jackson, the famous singer I was about to say sinner, and, and both may be true, but the famous singer, when he died, they found out he was over 400 million in debt. And studies have shown that at least one-third of those who win the lottery will file bankruptcy within three to five years. And that is followed by depression, drugs, alcohol abuse, and estrangement from family and friends. Now all of these examples are examples of humiliation from the world's perspective. This is, this is people who have been given much who have not had the capacity to know how to handle that. And have just allowed the, the, the wealth just to, to fuel a lifestyle that is just foolish. And it just all disappears. But what James has in mind here is something completely different. He isn't saying that the rich brother must boast in his loss of finances, or the rich brother um, is somehow no longer wealthy. That's not the point at all. What James is saying is that the rich brother, because he is now in Christ, recognizes that his wealth is not the most important thing about him anymore. That his home, his cars, his money, his influence, his standing in society is not the basis of his identity. But because of the gospel, how he now understands that what is most important is the fact that he is spiritually rich. And because of the gospel change in his life, the rich brother recognizes that life is short, that his riches are temporary, and that his responsibility before God is to use his riches now in a different way, in a way that honors God and serves him and pleases him. So he is is moving from this status that is one of leadership and prosperity and standing in community to one where he realizes that what's more important is not that but the humility of heart because now he is one who has been given spiritual riches which are worth far more than any earthly riches can account for. So he's not glorying in his worldly goods, but in his new standing in Christ. Now friends, this is a radical statement in a context where glorifying self was considered to be standard practice in that Hellenistic culture in particular the Hellenistic rich. This boasting, this word boasting, it is a word that describes self-promotion that was recognized and accepted as an essential element for establishing one's reputation and influence. Boasting was, was normally to draw attention to a person's possessions, his achievements, and his attributes, and that that Hellenistic society, you would enter into society and say, you know, I am so-and-so. And this is the wealth that I have. And these are the accomplishments that I have made. And these are the qualities that I have. That was considered standard. And what James is saying is the rich man isn't to boast in his riches. But he's to boast in his humiliation, which means that he is to Boast in his identity with Christ. That is what matters most. Now, boasting in and of itself isn't necessarily wrong. Listen to what we find in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts uh, boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So from this text, it's clear that boasting is not in and of itself wrong. The issue is, what is a man boasting about? So what James is calling for is that the rich brother apply heavenly wisdom to his trial of prosperity by saying in his heart something like the following, I am truly privileged to serve on the leadership council of this city, to have the wealth and resources in abundance and to have had the privilege of a healthy education. But truly what matters most to me is that I am a child of God a fellow brother and sister in God's family, one who has been given the most undeserved treasure of all, Christ himself. He now sees his wealth, his riches, his goods, his standing in society completely differently as temporary realities that will be short-lived, responsibilities that that must be stewarded well in order to glorify God. So James then offers this, this warning, doesn't he? end of verse 10 through verse 11, here's what he says. Because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. That's the, that's the statement. That's the example. He will pass away. And he gives now an illustration of what that looks like. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower fails, and its beauty perishes. And what he's talking about here is this, this happening that takes place in Israel where there's this called this, this Scirocco wind. I, although I lived there, I, don't, I was too young to remember this, but my understanding is that, that there are these, these winds that blow in out of the desert, and, and it's like opening a door to an oven. So you have this flower that grows in the grass, and it, it comes up one day, and it's all beautiful, and then all of a sudden comes this scorching, blowing heat. And that very day, that flower has withered, and it's gone. And he's using that as a a picture then to help understand the frailty of riches, of of wealth, of of standing in society. Now one of the the main struggles of the rich Christian is to, to have a false sense of security that is not grounded in God but is grounded in their stuff. It's natural. But it's a battle. And that's why Psalm... 49 and verses 16 and 17 say this, be not afraid of a man uh, when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. let's see, Jesus even talks about this in the parable of the rich fool. This is in Luke chapter 12. You can look up on the screen. And we can read it together. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, or greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see that? Same thing. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And that isn't necessarily that bad yet. That's wisdom. That's taking care of the stuff that God has prospered you with. But then he says, I will say to my soul, and here's the conversation in his heart, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, there's a perspective here, isn't there? As someone well said, using chess terminology, when the game is over, the king and the pawn go back into the same box. The rich brother, with all his possessions and privileges, cannot take them with him beyond the grave. But the, the one thing the rich man has that is far superior to any riches he may amass on this earth is the certainty of spiritual wealth. And so, because of Christ, we have an, inher- an eternal inheritance that can never be taken away, that will never perish. And so divine wisdom helps the rich brother to have a new and fresh perspective about or concerning the riches and the wealth that he possesses. Let me just emphasize this again. The text, and, and you'll find scripture not saying it's wrong for you to have riches. But because of the gospel, your perspective on those riches changes and is ordered now by the implications of the gospel to say, this is all mine, God says, and you are to use them for my glory. So the perspective of of the wealthy brother changes from that of the world. The world says, get all of the wealth that you can get and get it now. Jesus says, you cannot serve God in money. The world says, you will be measured by the stuff that you accumulate in this life. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, this is is what James is getting at. This wisdom is God and his word and his will applied to your heart and your circumstances that is now being applied to your particular circumstances. So you have, a, you have a poor man, and God's wisdom comes to his context and is fleshed out in that context to give him a perspective to say, I may be poor in this life, but I have Christ, and so I'm rich, And the rich man says, I may be wealthy in this life, but what's more important than that wealth is the riches that I have in Christ. So friends, they both struggle with these tests. And this this test is for both the, the rich man and the poor man to gain that wisdom. Now from this test of poverty and test of prosperity, we now move to verse 12. And the reality is that verse 12 kind of finishes the thought that was begun in verse 2. It is now the fruit of maturity. And James is just with us. He's he's just used this illustration of a comparison between the rich man and the poor man to help us understand how, how this wisdom fleshes out. But he could have used a variety of different illustrations. Let me just kind of run these through, maybe to tease them out a little bit for you. Maybe in the context he could have used the subject of age. You're a young brother or you're an older brother. Each of them have their own tests. And you must be wise in both of them. Your education. So you have the educated brother and you have a less educated brother. Or addiction. The brother who is struggling with an addiction and the brother who has, by God's grace, not been ensnared by the abuse of drugs or alcohol. They're they're both going through their own tests. they are different kinds of tests childbearing, the fruitful woman, the barren woman, physical strength, you're physically strong or you're physically weak. And there's race, right? You're a a racially accepted brother or you're the racially marginalized brother. You're the, the lonely one or you're the person who has lots of companions. You are One who has experienced an unexpected bereavement of a spouse early in life. Or there's that person who has had a long, very happy and productive marriage. And then there are those who are constantly unemployed and those who are fulfilled in their work. You see, I'm just throwing out just different comparisons. You say, it's not that one is better than the other. That's not the point here. The point is life and people are full of all different circumstances. And each of them, in their circumstances, go to God in prayer, by faith, asking for wisdom. And God grants them wisdom in their context, and he wants you to flesh out that wisdom where you live. So this is the application of what he has been saying. And friends, this is is radical, and it's right each of them, when they go to God, asking for wisdom by prayer through faith, will see God fleshing out in them ways that they can approach their circumstance that will ultimately move them toward maturity. So with that in mind, we see that both the lowly brother and the wealthy brother, when they apply the wisdom to their trials, prove to be blessed brothers. They prove to be on the road to maturity. Having considered the trial as a test and applying wisdom, they move down this path of maturity. And as a result, the man who applies godly wisdom is blessed and will receive the crown of life. As we read here, verse 12: Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. I want to restate this verse just kind of in a little bit more logical order. I'm not saying that James is bad. I'm just saying I want want you to see the logical order of things here. When the man, in this case the rich or poor, has remained steadfast under trial and passed the test so that he's moving toward maturity, he bears fruit in two ways and reveals the motivating truth of his heart. So, what are the two ways that he bears fruit? First of all, it says, "This man is blessed. He is blessed." Now, we usually think of blessing in terms of how I feel, what I have. I'm a blessed person. God has blessed me. Certainly, there's an aspect of that, but the emphasis of this word actually is not so much about your inner feeling of blessedness. It has more the perspective of what other people think when they look at you. Let me give you a context of what I'm talking about here. It's how other people view you. So when when people look at those who are willing to endure steadfastly under trial because they're rooted to Christ and are seeking to live for Him, they will say in their hearts how fortunate that person is to be able to find joy and to remain steadfast in that difficulty. I wish that I could have that same perspective. I'm amazed at how they can handle their struggle with such grace. Or what is their secret? How do they do it? What can I learn from them? Why is it that even when they are in the thick of their trial, they're able to press on with a right and clear mind? How are they able to count it all joy? They're looking at people and they're just like, how do they do it? how fortunate that person is. that's, That's the idea of blessing here. They are truly blessed by listening to and applying God's wisdom, and it's evident by their growing godly character. So it's no surprise that in Psalm 1, we're told about the blessed man who doesn't buy into the wisdom of the world, but he delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on that law, and as a result of that, what happens? He bears fruit in the various seasons of his life. He is prosperous. And friends, do you see what James is doing here? Do you see how he's giving us the big picture to encourage us to endure trials with joy? He's not promoting your best life now, but your blessed life now. In the sense that I have explained it here. Not because you've accumulated more stuff or are free from trials, but because you have been trained by God's wisdom and are applying it to your life here and now. So he is blessed now. That's the first fruit. The second fruit we see here is that he will receive the crown of life. When he stands before God in heaven, those who have, been, have remained steadfast and passed the test will receive this crown of life. That's what this text says. Now this is the image of the victor during the Greco-Roman games, the Isthmian games. They've run a race and they've won. They've um, fought in a wrestling match and been victorious. They have prevailed in the dangerous chariot race and crossed the line first. And all victors were given a wreath as a sign of honor. So when God's children remain steadfast under trial, God promises to honor them for their endurance. That's the picture. You'll get this crown of life. He understands how difficult it is for you to face those trials, to go through those tests. He is aware of the the sweat and the struggle and the tears that you're facing along the way. But when you cross that finish line and you enter into his presence, he promises you the crown of life. But unlike the Isthmian games, where there is only one victor who receives the crown, God's children will all be recipients. Now, I don't want you to think of this this new mentality that we have in our culture where, you know, kids go out and play and no one's keeping score and you're all happy. That's not it at all. It's something far more significant than that. A number of years ago, at a previous church, I was encouraged by my associate pastors to take part in a mini triathlon. Anyone participated in a mini triathlon know what I'm talking about? Well, it's something the younger associates wanted to do, and it basically involves swimming 500 meters, um, biking 14 miles, and running three miles. Now, you see, I enjoy bike riding. I have a bike in my garage. Um, It's a mountain bike, it's fun. If ever you want to go, let me know. Um, I'm a pretty good swimmer, I enjoy swimming. It's a lot of fun. Um, Used to be a lifeguard. And I've played sports all my life, so I just figured, you know, this is not a big deal. But I said to them, you know, why don't, we, why don't you just give me some time, let me kind of train a little bit and see how I'm doing because I've never done anything like this before. So I, I, I rode 14 miles and I was fine, had no problem. I mean, it's it's work, but I had no problem ultimately. I swam 500 meters and I was invigorated. And if you were swimmers, you know what I'm talking about. You come out, you're like, you feel really, really great. And I started to run around the track at Cal State East Bay. And my legs felt like lead. And my lungs felt like I had smoked a pack of cigarettes every day of my life. And I was hacking after one and a half laps. And I was surprised just to find that it was so hard to run. I could could bike, I could swim, but I couldn't run. It was actually really humiliating for me because I thought, oh, no big deal, I can run, no problem. And you know what that did for me, though? This this little attempt at sharing the story has a point, all right? What it did for me is it gave me great respect for those who run in marathons. Now, if you notice this about marathons, usually, you know, let's take the Boston Marathon, for example. Most people have no idea who won the Boston Marathon. I mean, you probably don't don't even know a name of someone who ran the Boston Marathon and won. But what you have in these marathons is people finally crossing the finish line and crowds around them cheering them on. See, the goal isn't to be first, the goal is to what? Is to finish. And when we are running the race that God has for us, the idea isn't so much that we win the race and beat everyone else. No, look at me, I'm great. No. God's people celebrate the fact that we finish and we finish well and we finish for God's glory. This is what we're called to do. This is the bigger picture. This is why we can count it all joy because in a marathon there are all sorts of different nuances of battle that take place in the heart and in the body to get across that finish line. And you have to preach something to yourself as you are running because your body is saying, I want to stop. I want this to be over I want to rest and the same is true in the Christian life (laughs) this is hard it's a marathon but there's a bigger picture now what is it that's motivating the child of God to endure to be steadfast to press on in the face of the test James hints at this in verse 12 Let's read it again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Well, what is it? It's that person's love for the Lord. Isn't that what he says? This is what he's promised to those who love him. That may not have been what you expected what he's saying here is this, when the weather, weather vane of your heart is to live your life for the, the glory of God because you love Him, that doesn't always mean the, the race is going to be without its struggle or its failure. But the Christian having fallen down is never abandoned by God. I love the story, you may know of it, of Derek Redmond. He was the British 400 meter runner who was of the favorites to win the gold medal in the 400 meters at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. And he qualified for the preliminary rounds with the best speed of everyone else. But in his last qualifying heat, as he comes around about the uh, 200-meter mark, he pulled up with a torn hamstring. You can see the video on YouTube, it's pretty, pretty staggering. And he, he, he falls down, having pulled his hamstring, and then he gets up. And you can see the determination in, in his face and his whole body, and he begins to hop around the track. And as he's hopping, from out of the crowd comes his father, hopping over the fence, pushing security guards out of the way. And finally he reaches his son, now at about the 100-meter mark, And he grabs a hold of his son. And his son, at that moment, buries his head in his father's embrace. But then, almost moments later, they're on toward the finish line. Son hopping, father steadily supporting. (laughs) And a security person comes up and says, you can't do this. You need to get out of here. And he's like, look, get out of here, buddy. We're going to finish this race. I'm going to help my son across the finish line. And they say this is one of the most memorable moments of Olympic history. A model for all of us. Now you might not remember that the winner that day was Quincy Watts. And that he set an Olympic record. But you'll remember the name Derek Redmond and the example that he and his father set for mankind. In a similar way, the reason we run, the reason we endure hardship, the reason we remain steadfast is because we love the Lord. But we also know in that loving the Lord that we're motivated by the fact that the Lord loves us. He's never abandoned us. He's always with us. He's always there to help us whatever the situation may be. So I hope you can see the perspective here. You have these rich man, this poor man, as as examples of what it means to apply wisdom to the context. But all of us, every child of God is running in a race. Every child of God needs to recognize this wisdom that God gives because we lack it and to apply it to our own circumstances. And if we do that, we are blessed, we'll receive the crown of life and it's evidence of our love for him. And let me finish now with just three concluding thoughts that flow out of our text. First of all, I want to talk about gospel blessing. The way of blessing is not to be exempt from trials, but to persevere under them. Now friends, that's important for us to realize. We might say, why is God doing this to me? Isn't he a bad God? But that's not the way of blessing is it the way of blessing is to say yes god has brought this into my life for a reason because he wants me to steadily endure so that i will mature that's radically a radically new way of thinking friends but that is pure bible secondly not only gospel blessing, but gospel perspective. No matter how detested or hated we are in this world, we truly enjoy the highest of all privileges. We have been welcomed into the family of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me just invite you on your own just to read Ephesians chapter 1 and to be reminded of all the riches that you have been given In Christ. This is a fresh perspective. This is a gospel perspective. And it's a perspective that we need to have, no matter our situation. And then, I just want to highlight what I'm calling gospel unity. The body of Christ unites people from all walks of life, all types of struggle and hardship, all kinds of ethnicities, cultures, and peoples. Mr. Lowly will sit in the same pew as Mr. Rich. Mr. Lonely will sit in the same pew as Mr. Outgoing. Mr. Addicted will sit in the same pew as Mr. Overcomer. Mrs. Ph.D. will sit in the same pew as Mrs. High School Dropout. Mr. Broken Marriage will sit in the same pew as Mr. Lifelong Marriage. Mrs. Brown will sit in the same pew as Mrs. Black. Mr. Corporate Executive will sit in the same pew as Mr. Janitor. Why? Because those are not the things that define us. They may be true about us. But what unites us is the gospel. So in fact, you might have Mr. Executive sitting in the congregation, being taught from the pulpit by Mr. Janitor. This is what the gospel does. The gospel is the great leveler. What this world is crying out for with justice and this new social order is in reality a longing for what the gospel provides. You want equality. It's called the church. You want you know people to be different but to be treated as one. It's called the church. True social justice takes place in the context of the church, we gather together as diverse people to worship God united in the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, breathed new life into us, and is now at work presently in us, molding us in our maturity and preparing us for heaven. The gospel is what the world does not understand, cannot comprehend, and thinks is foolish, yet it is the gospel that man desperately needs. Friends, this is the challenge that James is giving us. Count it all joy. You know the big picture. God is at work. No matter your circumstance, And recognize that he is moving you on to maturity through the process. And as you look around this room, it's all sorts of different people. And we're all different in so many ways. But we have been brought together because of Christ through his gospel. Lord, help us today to see the importance of your wisdom applied. And Lord, having done so, that we would encourage one another not to abandon your truth and seek the world's ideas but direct people back to the truth that they know and help them by prayer and encouragement to trust it and to lean on your wisdom as they face the various tests that you are taking them through lord we desperately need your wisdom and we thank you lord for james and how his drawing our attention to that fact. So, Lord, I ask that you would now help us. Help us to live this out. Help us to be thankful for that test or trial that is before us. Help us to seek what is lacking, that wisdom, and apply what we now learn through that wisdom so that we can live our lives for your glory. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen.